Everyone has questions. Why am I here? Where will I go when I die? Is there really truth? But not everyone has biblical answers. Welcome to The Pastor Study, a ministry of pastorstudy.org. Join us now as we study the Bible to draw closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is Pastor Tom Brock. Welcome to the Pastor's Study. We are going through a series on the book of Revelation. About 95 AD, Jesus appeared to John and told him to send seven letters to seven different churches. I'm going to show you on the globe here. Um, we live, of course, here in America, but over here is Europe. And right there, that pink part, is Turkey. That's where the ancient Asia Minor was. Seven different churches throughout modern Turkey were going to get letters from Jesus that he sent to through the Apostle John. If you watched our show recently, we did first the Ephesian church, second the Smyrnian church. Today, number three, we're going to do the church at Pergamum. So would you take out your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2, and let's learn about the church of Pergamum and how it applies to the modern church today. Let's pray. Father, we do want to pray now that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Lord, the church in America today is corrupt. And we would pray that you would just turn the church away from the culture and all the compromise. And Lord, teach us to become more like the church at Pergamum. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 12, 2, beginning at verse 12. Jesus says this to John. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Let's stop there. Let's talk about what Pergamum was like in 95 AD. Of all the seven cities and the seven churches, the city of Pergamum is the most excavated. So we know a fair amount about ancient Pergamum. Let me tell you about it. Pergamum was not as commercially important as Ephesus and Smyrna were, but it was more politically important because it was the first city to support the emperor cult, the worship of the emperor. And in 29 BC, they built a temple to the divine Augustus, and the law was every year the citizens had to go to the temple of Augustus, burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And if you wouldn't say that, you would be guilty of treason. Uh, this city of Pergamum was also more important educationally than Ephesus or Smyrna because it had the second largest library in the world. The biggest library in the ancient world was Alexandria in Egypt. Second biggest was Pergamum. Also, this city was more important religiously than the other cities because it had what was called an acropolis, a hill that oversaw the city. On top of the hill was the throne of Zeus, the temple of Athena, and the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius was the ancient serpent god that healed people. So people would come from all over the world to go to Pergamum to get healed by Asclepius, the snake god. Look at verse 12 again, Revelation 2.12. To the angel in the church of Pergamum write, The words of him, Jesus, 
who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does the sword symbolize there? Well, if you read Revelation chapter 1, the two-edged sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. And we read this in Revelation 19. The beast, the Antichrist, was captured along with it, the false prophet, who in the beast's presence has worked signs by which he deceived, etc. These two, the beast and false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword of him, Christ, who sits upon the horse, the sword that issues from his mouth, and all the birds will be gorged with their flesh. So here's what the sword symbolizes. Here's the next lesson. The sword symbolizes that Jesus will judge. I think in America today, we kind of have a wimpy picture of Jesus. They didn't in the first century. In fact, all the way through the Middle Ages, to this day, if you go into Europe and go into some of these huge cathedrals that were built in the 1100s, 1200s, often they'll have a big statue over the doorway of Jesus coming down as the judge to pulling people into heaven or pulling them down into hell. It's, it's, it's Christ the creator, the judge, is everywhere in medieval Christianity. We need to get some of that back. The word sword symbolizes Jesus will judge the world one day. We should remember that. <laughs> Look at verse 13. Jesus says to this church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Let's stop there. What was Satan's throne in Pergamum? Well, we're not sure. It might have been the temple of Zeus up on the hill, and from a distance it might have looked kind of like a throne. Or Satan's throne might be a worship, a, a, a reference to Asclepius worship, snake worship, snake being symbolic of the devil, and so it might be a reference to the worship of Asclepius, the snake god. Or probably it's a reference to Caesar worship because the worship of Caesar was so big in Pergamum. Or maybe you just put them all together and say, my, aren't there lots of false gods in Pergamum? <laughs> that might be what Satan's throne means. I will tell you, I was on a plane talking with the doctor, and this doctor says, well, don't you think that all the different gods of the different religions are but different faces of the one God? And I said, well, can I tell you a different point of view? The Apostle Paul says that the gods that the pagans worship are demons. Not different faces of the true God. They're demons. That's what's going on in, in Pergamum. They're not worshiping a different aspect of the true God. They're worshiping demons. Look at verse 13. Yet you hold fast my name. Here's the next lesson. The Christian calling is to hold fast to Christ. There's a story of some firemen that jump onto the fire truck and the Dalmatian dog jumps on with them and they go off to fight the fire and they, they stop and the, the fireman says to the dog, now stay, stay underneath this tree. So the dog stayed. The firemen go off to fight the fire, but the fire spreads, goes all the way to the tree, goes all the way to the bottom of the tree. And when the fireman came back, he found his Dalmatian dog burnt to death. And he said, that was the thing about that dog. It always did what I told him. <laughs> I think that's a picture of what a Christian is supposed to be. Jesus says you're going to suffer for my name's sake, and our job as a Christian is to cling to Christ and, and even get burnt for him if we have to. 
That's, what, that's what's happening in, in the ancient church here in Asia Minor. Verse 13, Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. Antipas is an early martyr. We don't know anything about him except this verse. Antipas, my faithful witness. Here's the next lesson. The Christian calling is to witness. Let me ask you, do you do that? Do you talk to other people? about Jesus? Do you witness? Now I know that's a very guilt-producing question because none of us witness as much as we should, but my question is, do you ever witness? Do you ever talk to anybody about Jesus? I had somebody ask me if my dad was a Christian. And I said, well my dad was a Catholic, he went to church every Sunday, but we never talked about God. I don't remember having a real real clear God talk with dad once. <laughs> Can you be a Christian and never witness? So what I want to encourage you to do, go to the Christian bookstore and buy some Bible tracts, some salvation tracts. And I, I keep them in my car. And so uh, a, a while ago I was taking a little tour. And this young woman has me in this golf cart giving me this tour of this area. And we start talking about God, and the tour gets over. And I said to her, wait a minute, would you? And I ran to my car, and I got her a little track, and I said, this little, this little track changed my life. And, and so, you know, our job as a Christian is to always be witnessing. Verse 13, this Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Here's the next lesson. The Christian calling is to die if necessary. The word martyr in Greek literally means witness because back in the ancient times if you witnessed for Christ you got martyred. <laughs> the word martyr means witness. Are you willing to die for Christ? I had a friend that said, you know, I'm afraid if they put a gun to my head and said curse Christ or die, I'm afraid I'd give in too. And I said to her, I am too, but that's why there's something called the Holy Spirit. So you pray now, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit, and if it comes to the point where I die or curse you, help me die before I curse you. There's a story during World War II that in Europe some Nazi soldiers burst into a church. They came to the front with their machine guns and said, we're going to kill the Christians here. If you're not a believer, you can leave, but we're going to kill the Christians here. Story goes, a number of people got up and left, that soldiers go over, bolt the doors, come back to the front of the church, put their machine guns down and said, tell us about Jesus. We want to hear about him from some real Christians. The Christian calling is to die for Christ if necessary. I add the words if necessary because do you know that it's okay to flee persecution? I get this from Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So it is okay to flee. It's okay to change your job if they're persecuting you. But if you can't flee, if it's either like you're, you've got some Muslim extremist putting a sword to your neck, if it's either curse Christ or die, you pray for the grace to die. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you in Pergamum. 
you Christians in Pergamum, some there are holding to the teachings of Balaam. Balaam was an Old Testament false prophet that tried to get the Jews to commit sexual immorality. Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice Im sexual immorality. So here's the next lesson. False teachers encourage false religion and immorality. Back in the ancient uh, times, if you went to worship false worship, if you went to Aphrodite's temple, they had prostitutes in the temple, and on your way to worship the, sac the statue of Aphrodite, you could slip into a side room and have sex with the prostitute. False religion and sexual immorality go hand in hand. Do we have people in the church today promoting sexual immorality? Well, my. I, 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 here's a young man who says to me, well, Pastor, my wife and I got married in another church, but when we went in for the premarital counseling, I thought I should tell him. So I said, Pastor, just so you know, my girlfriend and I are living together. You know what that Lutheran pastor said? Probably the best thing you could do to, before marriage to make sure you're compatible. That came from the lips of a Lutheran pastor. First of all, that pastor doesn't know the Bible. Because 1 Corinthians 6 says fornicators don't go to heaven. Secondly, he doesn't know the statistics. Do you know that people who don't live together before marriage have a lower divorce rate than the people who live together before marriage? I, I remember uh, uh, one day a, a, a mom and dad bring in their young adult son to talk to me because the son was struggling with same-sex attraction, homosexuality. And they wanted, the son wanted to hear a conservative viewpoint. So I gave him the scriptures. I told him why it's wrong and why you don't want to get into this. But you know where he was going next? Next, they were going to go across town to a liberal Lutheran pastor, and I knew this pastor, who was going to tell him gay sex is fine as long as you're committed to somebody. Do we have false teachers in the church today like they had at Pergamum? Oh, my. Let's look at verse 15. So you also have some there who hold the teaching uh, of the Nicolaitans. Now, we're not sure who the Nicolaitans were. They were probably a, a, a group of false teachers that promoted compromise. You know, it's okay. You can worship Jesus and Caesar. You can compromise a little bit. And, and uh, here's the next lesson. Fight compromise. I remember years ago talking to a Christian businessman, and he says to me, you know, you cannot run a business by Christian principles. You've got to bend the truth some. You know, Christian principles do not work in the business field. He kept talking, I kept thinking, I'm hearing a guilty conscience trying to justify itself. <laughs> Don't compromise. You know, I knew a Christian woman. I, I can't remember how this worked exactly. I think, her, I think she worked near an abortion clinic. And she told me, this has happened about 20 times, somebody will come to me and say, can you give me the directions to the abortion clinic? And her response each time was, I'm a Christian. No, I can't tell you where the abortion clinic is. God bless her. Don't compromise. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. Here's the next lesson. A true Christian always repents. Years ago, I was working at a college, and I led a Bible study. 
And before the end of the summer, uh, three of the college girls said to me, we're having sex with our boyfriends. And I said, well, 1 Corinthians 6, fornicators don't go to heaven. And they said, well, we know it's wrong, but we also know God forgives us. And I said to them, no, he doesn't. If you repent, he forgives you. If you're living in it, you're in trouble. According to this verse, a true Christian always repents. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them, the false teachers, with the sword of my mouth. Here's the next lesson. The God of love is also a God of war. In fact, I would argue because God is a God of love, therefore he wars against these false teachers who are destroying his church. Now, I heard of a mother who had a teenage daughter in high school. And there was a certain boy in, in her class who was trying to bed the daughter to get another notch in his belt. You know what that mother did? <laughs> she found the guy, went up and said, you will not talk to my daughter, you will never date my daughter, you will never be alone with my daughter. I mean, she went to war against this guy. Why? Because she hates her daughter? No, because she loves her daughter. And that's why Jesus, who is a God of love, is also a God of war. He's against these false teachers who are trying to destroy his church. Because he loves his church, he, he, he goes after the false teachers. You know, and also because he loves the pagans in Pergamum. The, the, the Pergamum's only hope of hearing the true gospel is this little church. And, and Jesus knows if Satan can wipe this church out through false teaching, he, 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 I'll never get the message to the pagans. So because Jesus is a God of love, he goes to war against false teaching. And you know what? He still does that. Way back in the year 2009, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America was meeting in downtown Minneapolis Convention Center to vote on whether to bless homosexual behavior. Right when the debate started, a tornado came, tore part of the roof off of the convention center, and the liberal Central Lutheran Church downtown where the gay lobby was meeting, it tore that big iron cross. The tornado tore it upside down. It hung upside down for months while they uh, 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 restored and repaired the church. Jesus is still warring against false teaching in the church because he loves his church. Look at verse 17, Revelation 2, 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, in context that means to the one who avoids immorality and false religion. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. So here's the next lesson. Salvation changes your life or you haven't been saved. To him who conquers gets salvation. But if you're living in immorality, if you're living in false religion, you won't be saved. Let me tell you, I'm a Lutheran. Let me tell you the Lutheran heresy. I was baptized as a baby. I got my ticket. Leave me alone. Let me tell you the Baptist heresy. I prayed the prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart. I got my ticket. Leave me alone. Both of those are heresies. You need to truly believe in Christ till you die to be saved. It's got to be a real thing that changes your life. I mean, somebody said to me, Pastor Brock, I went to my uncle's funeral. A godless man had no time for God, but the priest put him in heaven because he was baptized as a baby. Is that right, Pastor Brock? And I said, no, that's not right. To him who conquers means that either your life has changed or you're not saved. 
Look at verse 17. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What does the hidden manna mean? Well, I think the answer is nobody knows. Here's three possible interpretations. Number one, there was a Jewish legend that the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah found some original manna and hid it in the temple. And when the Messiah comes, he'll find it. Or number two, hidden manna might be a reference to Holy Communion. Or number three, hidden manna might be a reference to the tree of life that we get to eat off of. Nobody knows for sure, so here's my next lesson. <laughs> Buy some good commentaries. Not everything in the Bible is easy to understand. You know, get some good Christian commentaries at the Christian bookstore and get, get help on these difficult verses. And then verse 17. And I will give him a white stone. Well, what's the white stone? You know what? I found nine different interpretations on that one. <laughs> I'll just give you two. The white stone, sometimes when you went to a, a, a sporting event in the ancient world, you were given a white stone to get into the building. That was a ticket. Or, it might mean the second thing is, in court, you either got a black stone or a white stone. The black stone meant you're guilty. The white stone meant you're innocent. So that might be on Judgment Day you're given the innocence of Christ because of, of, of our faith. So, again, here's my next lesson. <laughs> Not everything in the Bible is clear. You know, when, when things in the Bible are black and white, we should be black and white. When they're fuzzy, we should be fuzzy. I get nervous about people who are so dogmatic about things you can't be dogmatic about, especially when it comes to end times events. And then verse 17. And I will give him a new stone and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Here's the last lesson. We will be new in heaven. I was, I was doing a funeral, and I was driving with the mortician to the graveyard, and I said to him, you know, my dad's been dead now about 33 years, and I don't know how this works. I said, is there anything left of dad? And he said, well, if your dad's been dead 33 years, it's probably just a skeleton. And I thought, ooh, well, this verse teaches in the resurrection we'll all be made new. You know, I've, I've got arthritis now in my shoulder. I'm hating this. <laughs> and I prayed for God to heal me, and I, I went to the elders for prayer. I still got it. And, you know, I, I'm not liking this, but the promise is for those who are in Christ, one day we will be made new. And that was Jesus' message to the church at Pergamum. Amen. Welcome to the portion of the pastor study where we now ask Pastor Brock to share with us his knowledge of scripture and his insights to answer questions we have regarding the Bible, our Lord, and our everyday walk with him. Pastor Brock, one of the questions that came to my mind when we were listening to you is that, is it okay for a Christian to be cremated? And you know, it's kind of funny. I get that question rather frequently. Uh, I'll get a phone call. Pastor Brock, is it okay to be cremated. And I'll just give you my opinion. Uh, I don't like the idea. Why burn somebody's body? Why? I mean, I know it's cheaper than a funeral, but and I'm cheap, but I don't like the idea of it. And the history of the church has been more against it. Now, I can't say it's a sin to be cremated, 
and we know that God will raise everybody up. And the Bible in Revelation talks about people that are lost at sea will be raised up. So God will put everybody back together, no matter how you're buried. So I'm not going to say it's wrong. So I think you can be cremated, and I'm not going to make an issue of that. I just don't like the idea. <laughs> okay, you talked about Jesus judging. Yeah. But didn't Jesus also say that we are not to judge? Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. I think that's the most misinterpreted and most misquoted verse in the Bible. Because in the same chapter where he says, judge not, he tells us to be fruit inspectors and to inspect how people live. And you can tell them if, you can tell if they're true or false by the way they live. And Jesus elsewhere, Jackie, said, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? So there is a kind of judging we are not to do, and there is a kind of judging we are to do. So Jackie, if, if I look down my nose at you because you do something I don't believe in, and I think I'm superior to you, that's what Jesus is preaching against, because we're all sinful. But if I realize that if somebody's after my daughter, like that mother, nothing's wrong with her of saying, honey, stay away from that guy. Of course we're to make moral judgments. So. Pastor Brock, what do you say to someone who says that all religions are basically the same and we all worship the same God? Mm -hmm. What's a good response to a it, person it, that has that feeling? If the person who says that is a Christian, then you show them the verse where Paul says, the idols that the pagans worship are demons. So Paul believed when they went to worship Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollo, they weren't worshiping different faces of the Christian God. They were worshiping demons. So that's what I would tell them. Where is that verse? That is in, I think that's 1 Corinthians 11, I think. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Use your Bible commentary. I will need to do that one. <laughs> okay. You talked about witnessing. I guess, can you give people an idea of how they should witness mm -hmm. to someone? Mm -hmm. You know, like that gal on the golf cart that I just witnessed to last week. What, what you try to get to, Jackie, is the basics. You don't bring up Adam and Eve or Noah and the ark. And all, uh, but you just say something like, you know, we're all sinners. God loved us so much. God came to earth and became a human being. His name was Jesus. He lived the perfect life we couldn't. So he went to the cross to pay for our sins so we could be forgiven. He rose from the dead. Believe in him. You will be saved. That's the basic. The basic message that we share to save people is he died for our sins, he rose from the dead. Those are the basic things. And if somebody doesn't respond to you saying that, do you just walk away and let well, them no, chew on it or think well, about it? Yeah, or? you know, often, often they're, you're just planting a seed and later somebody else will, will pick the plant. But yeah, we, we're loving, we're kind, and we, we do what we do and move on, yeah. Well, we want to thank you for being with us this week. We just appreciate your uh, firm support of this ministry and this show. And we pray that God would be with you this week, granting you his richest blessings until we're together again next time. Thank you for watching The Pastor Study. You can watch more of our programs at pastorstudy.org. We are on the air preaching the gospel of Christ because of our generous support of you, our viewers. Would you consider supporting our ministry? You may do so at pastorstudy.org. Or write The Pastor Study, P.O. Box 41294, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55441. May the blessing of our one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you today and always.